0: This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. The rest of us, we're going to open up to those who are stuck in here with me, are going to open up John's Gospel to chapter 4. One of the things that we've, we've seen with John's Gospel is that it's, it's unique in a number of ways. One of the ways that John's, John's style comes out is in the way that he uses characters uh, in order to create meaning in the text. And John uses quite a few characters, and John seems very interested in, in showing us how characters develop. Um, when, we look at, when we look at someone like John the Baptist, this is a character who um, portrays clear understanding about who Jesus is and what his role is uh, in God's, God's plan and God's mission. We look at someone like Nicodemus, who is a bit different. He doesn't understand. And he shows up a few times throughout the narrative. And, and we're not really sure exactly what to make of Nicodemus' development as a character. Uh, there's other disciples, Peter especially, in the second half of the gospel, we see multiple times where, where Peter is shown to misunderstand, um, to do things that are sort of out of place for a disciple. Uh, there, there, are, there are lots of ways John uses this, uh, this kind of literary device of, of characterization to, to teach us. And this narrative we have in chapter 4 um, is probably... It's unique in the sense that the Samaritan woman only appears here, but we see quite a bit of development in these these few short this this short section. So, one thing that Pastor Adam mentioned when we started this series is that John is kind of like an artist. Uh, he's he's doing things very artistically, and he's he's making a point to help us to see things in a way that um, produces imagery, and it's, it's colorful, and it's powerful. And if I could add to that that analogy, I'd say John is also like a composer. Uh, what he does is he, he blends history with theology in a way that's, that's quite impressive. He brings together the physical meaning of a situation with, with the spiritual meaning, or he imbues it with spiritual meaning. And so when we look at when we look at John as a composer, it's, it's sort of as if the historical reality of what's going on is, is kind of like that, that bass line, the, the, the bass clef. It's, it's happening, it's, it's keeping the beat, it's keeping the rhythm, um, it's, it's moving us along. But John uses the upper register to create the melody, which is like the spiritual Reality that's going on within the historical reality. So when we read John 4, we see that there are, there are certain things happening, th- certain things that did happen, but John's interpreting these events for us in a way that helps us to understand spiritual things. And if we think back to Nicodemus, it's sort of the same thing going on, is talking about seems like there's, it's talking about physical things, but Jesus is using physical realities to talk about spiritual things. So just keep that in mind as we, as we move forward. There's a couple things that we see are very important to John when it comes to discipleship. Disciples for, for John are those who receive Jesus' words and teaching um, we see that specifically in John 6, receiving his words. Um, there are those who develop from points of misunderstanding to understanding. And they, they portray genuine belief in, in Jesus and his mission. Sometimes this happens twice. I think we see this with the Samaritan people. We see they believe because of the woman's witness, and then they believe again because of Jesus' words. And with the, um, the official in, in chapter 5, he, he believes Jesus' words, and then he goes on his way, and when his, the servant says that it happened, his son was healed at that hour, he believes again. And so we see this, this development in belief that it's, it's not simply just knowing who Jesus is, but it's, it's this full, whole type of belief. And the second, another thing we see is that true disciples, they bear witness or they testify. And this begins in chapter one, where uh, those who, who are John's disciples, they follow Jesus, and then we see them going and, and getting others to come and follow. And so that's something they do. They bear witness, they testify, and true disciples remain and abide with Christ. So these are some of the ways that, that we see John prioritizing what it it means to be a disciple. In chapter four, the the Samaritan woman, she she sort of plays two roles. And I'm I'm trying to set this all up because I think it'll help us as we go through the text. But she, she first plays the role as an individual encountering Jesus. But second, she plays the role as a representative of her people, the Samaritans. The way that the the way that the encounter kind of develops, we start to see her, her concerns are her people's discerns, and her issues are actually her people's issues. And so she plays these two roles. She plays them very well. And it's something that we, we kind of have to keep an eye on as we, as we read this. So let's read the text. We're going to go from verse 1 to verse 30 in chapter 4. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for um, John's gospel. We thank you for all that it shows us about who you are and about who you want us to be. I pray, Father, that you would open our hearts uh, as we look at this, this conversation, this interaction, and that your spirit would teach us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So we start off with sort of an odd introductory statement to the, the section here. John gives us this sort of, this reasoning for why Jesus is moving away from Jerusalem. And I think that's the key, is that, that he, he's, he was in Jerusalem in chapter two, and now he's, he's, moving, he, he's moving out into the Judean wilderness, um, and then moving now up through Samaria into Galilee. And so this, this comment here that the Pharisees, had, when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, besides being a really awkward sentence, um, what does that tell us? And I, I, think, I think what it shows here is that what, what the Pharisees their their issue is is rivalry and so we see we see them interacting with John the Baptist hey hey who are you these people are coming to you why are you baptizing what's going on we see their interaction with Jesus in, in a similar way there's this what John shows us is there's sort of there's sort of two communities in terms of the the Jews which is a very prevalent idea in the gospel the Jews and then we see the followers of Jesus, and and in chapter three, we're sort of wondering, like, well, how does John play into it? He sort of has a community. He's baptizing. What's he doing? And so, what, what John makes sure that we understand is that is that John. So, I'm, there's a couple of Johns here. I'm going to try to clarify John. The, what John the Baptist is doing is pointing people to Jesus, and and his ministry like we talked about last week, is, is not about him. He, he's the friend of the bridegroom. He's pointing to the bridegroom. Now, John, John shows us what true followers of God, what a true, a true um, sort of Jewish ministry, prophetic Jewish ministry should be, is, is those who are looking forward to the Messiah and those who move towards the Messiah. Whereas the Pharisaic community, the Jews, they, re- they reject and they remain their own separate thing. And so that's sort, of the, that's sort of the imagery going on here is that John the Baptist is doing his job. He's pointing people to Jesus. What he says brings them to Jesus. And, and so the Pharisees are interested in who's taking people away from their group, okay? And so once Jesus... Jesus' disciples are baptizing more than John, you see how their focus has shifted. Jesus is now the rival. And so I think that's what's going on here. And, and so it says that Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples. And, and so this is the key idea, and this is all set up for this passage because what, what John said is, I, I baptize with water, but one comes who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus doesn't baptize with water. That's not what he does. He baptizes with the Spirit. So again, John's, John, the, the gospel writer, is making really clear that we understand Jesus is not here to baptize with water, that his disciples are bringing those of, of into the community, into Jesus' community, followers of him. So, so that's the idea. We see this movement from... From one community to the other, we see Jesus's prominence. Um, we know that Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. We don't know what that means, uh, but we see there's a there's a distinction there. And so it says he goes goes up to Samaria. There's a there's a history. The Samaritans are part of the Northern Kingdom. Um, they are those who they broke away from from Judah and. They began to create their own system of worship, and what it ended up being was um, a a system where they blended local religious practices with practices, religious practices of of the Jews, of of the Israelite people, and so we call that syncretism. So they they're blending these two things. They're they're bringing idols into the into the mix, and and. It wasn't a good situation. So, so the Samaritans have, a, have, a, have a, a rough history in terms of religious uh, worship. And, and so this provides a setting for us. These are people who the Jews did not see as part of their people anymore. They were, they were mixed. They were defiled both uh, physically and in terms of their genealogy. They intermarried with the nations, um, and they were defiled religiously. And so, the last thing that it tells us in this section is that Jesus, he, he comes to this well, he's tired, he's wearied, and it was about the sixth hour. The, all of these references actually point us to something kind of interesting. The sixth hour is a term only used in the passion narrative right before Jesus goes to the cross. Um, the idea of he was wearied again points us to the passion narrative. And what we see in a minute is he asks the woman for a drink, which also kind of points us to Jesus' statement on the cross when he says, I thirst. So there's, there's kind of something interesting going on here. And, and it reminds us that the way John wants us to read his gospel is not just from left to right, um, but kind of forward forward backwards, inside out, upside down. Like, you have to read from every angle and come back and forth. It's sort of, uh, it's, to use the artist imagery, it's, it's a big painting. And, and you're kind of looking back and forth. You're seeing the whole picture. That's, that's what you have to do when you read John's gospel, which makes it a little difficult to preach through because there's so much, there's so much that he's always referencing and referring to throughout. So he uses this term, the sixth hour, uh, to make it even more complicated, um, the sixth hour is, doesn't seem like it's just a reference to the Passion narrative, uh, but it's, it also seems to be a contrast between something that we saw with Nicodemus in chapter 3. These are, this is the second time we see an extended conversation that Jesus has with somebody. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He misunderstands. He doesn't seem to get it. Kind of end of story. The Samaritan woman meets Jesus in the middle of the day when it's light. She develops from a point of misunderstanding to understanding. Not only develops, but she bears witness. And we see uh, her, bring, her bringing her people to Jesus. So, so there's, there's this different scene set up going on here as well. Um, I think those are, the, those are the two things that we kind of have to keep our eye on. Um, the, there's a lot of contrast between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Um, they're both asking questions. There's the topic of the spirit. Um, there's, there's the idea of water, concept of water is talked about. There's this misunderstanding between physical things and spiritual things. Um, a lot of contrast. And so I think that that John wants us to to make this note because Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He's supposed to be a teacher of the people. The Samaritan woman is kind of a a nobody in terms of the way the Jews would think about her. She's from the wrong culture, the wrong ethnicity. Uh, She's a woman. She's got a bit of a, a shady background. We're not really sure what's going on there. But when we start to make this contrast, we see that that John's doing something really interesting between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. So here she is. She shows up in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. The the word for Samaria is used like four times in these first few verses. And and so it's like... (laughs) it's like John saying, she's, she's a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman. She's from Samaria. They were in Samaria. So like, you know, do you get it? Like, this is, this is not just about the woman. It's about who she is as a Samaritan. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, that's, that's kind of interesting because his disciples just went into town, a Samaritan town, to buy bread, which kind of depending on how we understand dealings, seems like dealings. And here Jesus is asking this woman for a drink, which would be to drink from her vessel, which is definitely dealings, okay? So, so what, we, what we're seeing happening here is that, that Jesus is breaking down these boundaries. And, and this is why it's so fascinating because it's not just boundaries for who should receive the gospel or who should receive the truth, but this woman becomes the ideal disciple in John's terms. She, she does basically, she ends up doing everything right. And, and so it's, it's not just about who can receive the gospel, but how those who, are, who unexpectedly, unexpectedly receive the truth also become ideal disciples. That's, that's a big deal. That's a big deal for this, for what John is doing here. And so she, she shows up and and Jesus Jesus asks her for a drink. Give me a drink. <laughs> and um, she says, Why, you know, why are you asking me a drink? I, I'm from Samaria. You know, it doesn't make any sense. And so what Jesus does, he he immediately starts to point her to his identity. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So so this is this is interesting because Jesus' identity is, is what kind of fronts the conversation and, and, in the, and it ends the conversation. Because in the end, in, in verse 26, he says she says, you know, Messiah is coming, and he says, I who speak to you am he. So, so that's, that's what we're, we're kind of closing in on, is, is Jesus' identity and how this woman can recognize him for who he is. And so it comes to us in this context of water, of um, you would have, if you had asked him, he would have given you living water. At living water is, is a, it's a concept that we see in the prophet's, as something that God desires to be for his people. And it's, it's usually spoken of in terms of their rejection of God. And, and Jeremiah gives us a couple really clear examples of this. Um, in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cistern, cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. This, this is actually in the context of worship, because broken cisterns re refers to their idolatry, the worship of false gods. And he says in Jeremiah, says in chapter 17, O Lord, the God of the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame, those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. And so Jesus is presenting himself very specifically in terms um, that Jeremiah uses to describe Yahweh, the Lord. And what's interesting is, is in this passage, he says, he, there's this shift from the first person to the third person. He says, you know, if you knew the gift of God, you would, who's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then it shifts back when Jesus says, uh, whoever drinks of the water, I will give him. We shift back to the... So, so there's an odd thing going on there. Because it seems that Jesus is sort of is pointing us, who is he? He says, if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked him So so he's making this this comparison between himself and the God who says these things to the people of Israel, to the northern kingdom, the Samaritans in Jeremiah's prophecy, and and also throughout some of the other prophets. And so Jesus is, is describing to her his identity as the Lord, the God of Israel, and so She's confused, and, and she's wondering what he's talking about. You know, where do you get that living water? You have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Uh, and so, so we see the confusion. We see the misunderstanding. And, and Jesus then brings in this, this concept of water that you can drink and never be thirsty again. And he says, the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman responds like this. She says, I want that. That sounds good. I'll take it. But I don't think she really knows what it means, and and we don't really kind of know what it means at this point. And so what we see Jesus doing is he's moving from this physical need, this physical reality, to a deeper spiritual reality in the conversation. Because what we know that what the Messiah offers is not, is not just physical nourishment, again, as we'll see in John 6, but spiritual nourishment, true spiritual nourishment that gives life. And water is, is tightly associated with life in this context and in uh, this society. So, the, so he moves from the physical to the spiritual He, he begins to draw out themes that are not just pertinent to this woman but to all of the Samaritans because there is a spiritual thirst. There's a brokenness. And, and that brings us directly into the next section where Jesus says, go and call your husband and come here. And the woman, woman tells him, I have no husband. And, and so this, this seems like sort of an... An odd shift in the narrative, um, but it, it actually plays, it plays right into the, the theme of, of worship, uh, and we'll see that in a minute. But the idea of marriage is, is really present in this scene, um, also because what Jesus, the conversation Jesus has with this woman is at a well. And that's where in the Old Testament, Moses uh, meets Zipporah, his wife. Jacob meets Rachel at a well. And of particular interest, in Genesis 24, Abraham's servant Eleazar finds Rebekah for Isaac at a well. And Eleazar says something very similar in that context. He says, you know, whichever woman will come and give me a drink and also water my, my camels." So we, we have sort of this kind of marriage theme going on here, and not in the sense not in the sense between Jesus and this woman particularly, but between Jesus as God, as speaking for Yahweh and the Samaritan people. Because that is the way that God describes his relationship with his people in the prophets, especially in Hosea. He says to Israel, he says to the northern kingdom, in that day you will... You will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my Baal, which, kind of, which actually means husband also, but Baal was a, an, you know, a deity of the pagans. And so Jesus is, is sort of playing off this marriage motif, which we've also seen kind of developed throughout the Gospels, and I mean, throughout the, the beginning of the Gospel. So she makes this statement, I have no husband, and he tells her, you know, you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. And so the first thing we recognize is, is that Jesus, Jesus understands this woman's past and the issue that she's had with relationships, but th- this isn't developed. We don't know whether she was divorced, whether she was widowed. Uh, we don't know the situation. John doesn't tell us. But we do know that the last one is not, that she has is not her husband. I'm, I'm inclined to read this in terms of marriage as security. Because in a lot of ways, that was a woman's security in this culture, was having a husband, someone who could protect and provide. You were vulnerable uh, as a woman without a husband. And so I'm not, I'm not convinced that the woman was promiscuous and that that's what John is getting at here. But there's clearly an issue, and to have someone who's not your husband is clearly not a good situation. So, so we're, not, we're not advocating for this, but it doesn't seem like John is trying to say that this woman was purposefully promiscuous, um, but that there are relational issues here. There's, there's brokenness in her relationships, whether through death, divorce, you know, some other sin, there's brokenness. And so this makes the woman an ideal representation of her people because there's brokenness between the relationship of the Samaritans to their God. And this, is, this has been broken for a long time. And so Jesus comes to restore this. And I think that's what this, this theme of marriage is reminding us. So, what does the woman do she in in verse 19 she says i perceive you're a prophet our fathers wor- worshiped on this mountain but you say that in jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship this is this is often it kind of looks like a change of subject it looks like the woman is uncomfortable that jesus has has knowledge about her past and, and it sort of feels like a change of subject. Uh, but I don't think that that's exactly what's going on in the narrative. Because the issue of relationship and, and husband and marriage is something that deals with the worship. That imagery deals with the worship of the Samaritans. And so what Jesus, what Jesus says here. I think is is sort of cluing us in that the theme continues. That this is we're all, we're talking about worship, sort of the whole way through, and now that becomes really clear. This is this is the issue, and so the woman asks these these questions, very perceptive questions about worship, and Jesus tells her essentially. That you know what what this, what you do is false. It's false worship, <laughs> and and salvation is of the Jews, and so Jesus is giving her giving her an understanding that look, what you're doing is what you're doing is is wrong. This is this is not the way to worship God. But he gives her again, sort of he he. He brings it up an octave and he says to a woman believe me the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in jerusalem will you worship the father and then and then coming down he says the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father is seeking such to worship him and so what jesus does is he He's bringing bringing her and us, the readers, towards this understanding that true and genuine genuine worship in the new covenant, in in the the age of the Messiah, has, has sort of broken the barriers of place and location and culture and ethnicity and even gender. Because worship... In the Messianic kingdom is is in spirit and in truth. And these things, these those two things aren't sort of opposing things that you need to make sure to keep together. They're describing each other. For John, what is spiritual is true. And so he gives us this, he gives us this sort of big conclusive summary statement: worship in spirit and in truth. And, and what that shows us is that even though this woman, number one, as an individual, with her difficult past, with the things that she seems to have gone through, um, with her, her misunderstanding, being part of a system that is broken in its worship, is now offered this living water through the Messiah who comes to restore all people to true worship. And so this last section, the last portion of that, that thought is she says, I know Messiah is coming, and Jesus reveals himself as the one who speaks to her, the one who speaks. And it's similar to the end of John 9, where the blind man uh, who has been healed, he comes back and he, he sees Jesus, and and he says the same thing about being the Messiah. I who speak to you am he. So this revelation happens just as his disciples are coming back. So the disciples are out of the picture for most of the conversation. They, they come back at the end of the conversation. The whole time, Jesus has been instructing and, and teaching this woman and it says that they come back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or "What? why are you talking with her? And so again, he's broken these bounds, these social bounds. The, the gospel transcends these norms that would be hindrances to the word going forth. So if Jesus was not willing to speak with this woman because she was a woman and it re- wouldn't really look good for her to be talking to her at a well uh, with no one else around, she wouldn't have received this, this hope, this truth. And, and so that's, that's the point is, is John's showing us it's, you know, it's sort of a social faux pas. And, and the gospel transcends that. And it says the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And so the Samaritans, it says, they went out of the town and were coming to him. So she receives Jesus's witness. Uh, she, under, she, she understands that there's something about this person that is different. And she goes, and she. the way she phrases it is, could this be the Christ? Could this man be the Messiah? So it's sort of like, there's this, there's this initial belief, remember, because disciples often believe twice. And so there's this initial understanding that Jesus is someone different. There's something special about him. And then what we see later on in the chapter is sort of that second full belief of her whole people who come and believe in Jesus. And so something, what I want us to see from this, this, this story, this conversation, is, is the way that that the gospel and life, I mean this is, this is the kind of social situation where you don't you don't like imagine yourself being in, ministering in it. It's to the it's to the wrong person at the wrong time. Um, everything's wrong about it? It just doesn't make a lot of sense. But the gospel transcends that, and, and so what we see is that even though the Jews don't have dealings with Samaritans. Jesus does, and his disciples should. And, and so we see a community of those who are, who are inward-looking. They're just trying to protect themselves. And for us, for John, that is, that is exactly an example of what we don't want to be. Jesus' community is, is the one who sees the needs, who sees the people who are hurting, who's willing to step over or step past those those traditional boundaries and offer life, offer offer her living water, look to her deepest needs. And this woman who, who receives the words of Christ, she becomes a witness. She becomes a model disciple in John's terms. And so I think that's just a beautiful picture of ministry. And and all of this centers around worship. What is, what is true worship? What is worship in spirit and in truth? And so what, what this text reminds us of is that worship is not just about where you go, you know, where you've always gone, the, the tradition of doing things a certain way, worship is about. In, in the messianic kingdom and the, the new covenant is about being in Christ with the community of God's people. And that community that worships together is a very diverse community. And that's, that's something that helps us to understand Jesus's mission and his, his role and his love for people as the Messiah. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, your grace and goodness and for all that you have done for us. Lord, that you have called us, that you speak to us. Father, I pray that our our worship would be in spirit and in truth. Lord, that we would seek to minister to those in in their deepest needs, even even when it's difficult. And we thank you, Lord, for your your love and your grace and your mercy towards us. Amen. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.